The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us every single Tuesday. We're back for you with another episode. My name's Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox is alongside us. We have a lot to cover today because Tony La Russa has announced his retirement from the game of baseball. He's stepping away from the Chicago White Sox because of his health, and that is obviously the foremost concern. As long as Tony La Russa is healthy... And we know that he is doing the right thing to take care of himself. Then I feel totally justified in saying that it's good to know that Tony Larusa will not be the manager of the Chicago White Sox in 2023. James and I will have speculation on what's to come, but here's something that we need to discuss, among other things, is the future of this franchise and its immediate future. Rickon also spoke today, and I say today it is the Monday evening as we release this podcast every Tuesday. But it's interesting, James, to me that the Chicago White Sox set up this end-of-season press conference with three games left on the slate. They're playing the Minnesota Twins, and by the time you're listening to this, most likely the season is over. If you're you know listening on Thursday or Friday, we understand that. But in the present, we're starting to, just trying to wrap our brains around all that went on from 2020 offseason to today. So let's discuss. James, the White Sox decided to have an end-of-season presser. Tony La Russa announces his retirement. Rick Hahn starts to speak on the failure that was this experiment, and we're left wondering what the hell is next. So just your feelings from all that happened today on Monday, October 3rd. So, I mean, is it like kind of weird that they didn't just wait three days? Like, I... I don't know. Like I thought the time, like I don't know if it's like a Larusa thing. Like was in town to do it Monday, and obviously, you know, Rick Hahn, who doesn't seem like he's going anywhere, right? So like a lot of the fan base, I feel like, isn't very happy about that. Uh, like didn't want to have three press conferences, is my guess, right? Like you have the Larusa press conference 
Monday and then like an end of season one, like Friday. And then I would say that they're going to probably try to get going. Like they, I don't know how long the manager search will take. I mean, you know, they've never really done a manager search. So I guess like that'll be news worthy too, if they like actually do one. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think he wrapped things up. It's just what, like, what are, what are these guys supposed to say right now? Like the Tony LaRusso thing didn't work. I think there was really no second guessing, right? It was a lot of first guessing. I think, you know, there were two people on the planet that thought that this was a good idea and, you know, one of them owns the team. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it sucks obviously, right? Because like, I feel like, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek to say that Jerry Reinsdorf wasted a rebuild on Tony La Russa, but I mean, you know, at least two years of it is kind of down the drain now. And now they have big questions to answer going forward. And I said on the last podcast, like, I think it's salvageable and I really do like believe that. I don't think it's like one year and then like they're rebuilding again or something like that, but they definitely have like roster construction issues, like in addition to the problem at manager that isn't going to be easily fixed. Like as Rick Hahn kind of alluded to today, actually, you know, like some of the one-off comments and like, look, I heard some of this on your show that you, you know, that you produced today um, with, with Bernstein and Lawrence. Like I completely agree with, with some of the stuff that Lawrence Holmes said. I mean, you, you can't just gloss over this and pretend like this team was going to be bad with any manager. Like we've talked about it on here. Like, I, I don't agree with that at all. And I think Miguel Cairo kind of showed that, you know, whatever, like replacement level manager X has this team in a better position. And I just think like we've been over all of the issues that Tony La Russa had and, you know, just like all the control that he had and, you know, some of the things that that caused. So like, I definitely think like changing the manager was the easiest thing that they could have done. And obviously it took health reasons to get it done. But yeah, like there there's roster issues. But the problem that I have is like, I think I said preseason that like they might have the best roster in the American League, like even with some of the issues. And like, yeah, I look like an idiot now, I feel like. But like I thought like I was very unhappy with the way they handled the offseason. And I'm not going to get into Carlos Rodon again and, you know, adding a left-handed bat. But, I mean, I legitimately thought, like, once they got Pollock, like, I thought that was a big move. And I thought that they could, you know, fix whatever was left to fix at the deadline. Obviously, none of that stuff happened. But, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, it's really tough for me to now say, like, oh, yeah, like, I definitely saw this coming. Like, I thought La Russa was going to be bad, but I, I thought that they had enough to, like, kind of overcome some of those issues because I thought they'd hit for enough power. And it all just cratered, obviously, and I was wrong. But, yeah, that's where – of course it's on everybody. But I I think the manager mattered a lot more than he should have. And he mattered so much because of the power that he had – really at the top of the organization. He had a lot of say and all the pull to do what he wanted and his way was was it. I'm not in the clubhouse and the players are all saying good things about the way Larusa managed them and I, I take them for their word. It's just the play on the field doesn't suggest that it was a healthy atmosphere overall. And again, you know, a lot of the philosophies instilled by the manager and the coaching staff is taken out by the players and you know, you don't have to run hundred percent and all this other stuff. Little things that go into the intangibles, I should say, the intangibles of the players that 
aren't necessarily quantifiable on paper, but I mean, you see it, you watch a baseball team play well or play like the White Sox. There's a stark difference. Now I want to take you back to what you said, James, about this roster and how you believe that they can still salvage at least a competitive season at the very least in 2023. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think this roster still has enough to compete. And if you're smart in the off season, there's ways to seriously compete for a World Series again. Now, people may not want to hear it or scoff at that thought, but there's legitimate reason to believe that the talent on this roster can still compete for an AL Central crown and with the right moves, make a run at the World Series. I'm not going to dismiss that possibility. However, there's a long road ahead, and let's tackle some of these issues as we look at the roster, James. And we mentioned the Abreu dilemma, considering that he's on the last year of his deal, and they'll have to make a decision on that player. And I think we can start there, James, because that's the most important piece, I think, in all of this because of how it ties into everything else. Yeah, I mean, the the Abreu thing is interesting, and Rick Hahn seemed pretty noncommittal like, at the press conference because, honestly, I just, like, I don't know how much is up to Rick Hahn and, and Kenny Williams. I mean, Rick Hahn said that, what, he's leading this managerial search, but I'll tell you what, he thought he was leading the last one because, you know, <laughs> he was going to hire his buddy A.J. Hinch and then... uh that didn't happen, obviously. So, you know, with Abreu, I just, I don't know how much money they have to spend. And and I kind of feel like Abreu is one of these guys who many would like to see retire in a White Sox uniform. And like, I understand that completely. Um, you know, Beef Loaf was on, what, our last episode. And, you know, he kind of mentioned how it seems like Abreu is kind of nestling into his, like, what, the Michael Brantley portion of his career, which is, which is fine, right? And he had a really good season. I think I'm on record saying I I just like I need more power from him. I think they have a Jose Abreu, Andrew Vaughn problem, and I think we disagree a little bit on this. So it'll be interesting to like you know hear what you have to say. I just I just don't know how you have both of those guys on your roster when you also have Aloy, and I think Aloy is obviously like the one that I'm definitely keeping. Like, I, you know, I think we saw like a healthy Aloy, like what he can do. Right. And I just think, I think there's a lot of times that he's going to have to DH. I think the biggest issue is you look at Andrew Vaughn and I think he's underachieved a little bit to like what we thought he could do or what we were expecting. Right. Like it's, it's not as many homers as we expected, even though he's led the team. It's a 122 WRC plus, which is good, but he's like not even a one war player because he's such a bad outfielder. Like I just don't think he should ever play the outfield again. And I think if he and Abreu are on the same roster, he's just inevitably going to have to. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what the answer is, but it's one of like the first orders of business I would assume, like coming up here over the next couple of weeks. So. Just want to name some names that are returning for 2023 guaranteed. Lance Lynn, Yoan Moncada, Liam Hendricks, Tim Anderson, Aloy. AJ Pollock is almost assuredly going to take his player option of $10 million. So, yeah. hey, really quick. So AJ Pollock, it's actually $13 million because, oh, good. because of all the all the uh, playing time incentives. Like He got like a million for every like 50 plate appearances after like 400 or something along those lines. It's something crazy, but yeah, $13 million or he could opt out for five. So he, that would, he would have to get 8 million on the open market in order to, you know, I would think to opt out of that deal. So there's that great perspective to keep in mind, still feeling like AJ Pog's going to take the money. 
but maybe you know the White Sox cut him a deal and say, listen, it's best for both of us if you just go away. Uh, and he still might make some money. Anyway, like we're looking at the 26 man, right? And that's the whole point of this Abreu discussion. And I understand totally the conundrum that we have with Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu and Aloy Jimenez and you add in Gavin Sheets and even Yasmani Grandal into this because he's tailoring off in his career. But here's something that I want White Sox fans to consider, and that's this roster will look very similar, maybe not the same, but very similar. And I think that's okay as long as there's additions to the starting rotation and there's additional left-handed bats anywhere. Now that puts Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu's future into question. Now conventional thinking suggests that you take the cost-controlled young player who you drafted and developed and believe can turn into a middle-of-the-lineup quality all-star hitter uh, for his career. And that's something that an organization can take pride in. But it's also something, too, in Jose Abreu's case that the organization is a really big fan of what Jose Abreu offers and brings to the table. Plus he's the most successful White Sox hitter across 2020 at his age at this point in the lineup. So you're, you're talking about moving on from your best player. And I know he's aging and regression is inevitable, but the way that the White Sox operate leads me to believe that they want to hang on to Jose Abreu. And separately, I believe considering those who have talked to within the White Sox, like Andrew Vaughn so much that they want to continue to watch him develop. Now, that doesn't mean he's staying. This is just my perception of the way the White Sox feel about him. So knowing that the White Sox like him a lot, knowing that the White Sox love Jose Abreu, and I agree with you as well, James, the quality of talent within Eloy Jimenez specifically makes this difficult. I think all three can coexist on this roster It'll be messy, but I think they can make it work. But that means Aloy has to play left field every once in a while. I'm not playing Andrew Vaughn anytime, anywhere in the outfield ever again. So that means he's split in time at first base DH. That also means Jose Abreu split in time at first base DH. Whoever is not DHing that day either gets an off day or Aloy is DHing. They're going to have to build in off days if they decide to keep these three players. On to Yasmina Grandal very quickly. I highly doubt that anybody would be interested in acquiring Ismani Grandal, even if the White Sox were willing to take on some of that money. To me, he's a backup catcher at this point. Don't DH him. Just have him as a backup. If he can't catch, then he's not in the lineup. Big fan of Gavin Sheets and his development, but he's nothing more than a platoon. He's not your everyday right fielder, that's for damn sure. And I don't want to play in right field, period. But again, we're back to it. The positional redundancies on this roster is making this conversation very difficult. So, James, like back to what I was saying with the three pieces that are affected eh, primarily with Jose Abreu, Andrew Vaughn, Aloy Jimenez. With my rationale, considering that the White Sox feel the way that they do about Andrew Vaughn, Jose Abreu, and Aloy Jimenez, can you understand where I'm coming from as to why they would want to keep those three players and how they would be able to implement those three if they were on the roster? I mean, the first part I do. I understand why they would want to because, like, it's an organization that, like, theoretically, like, smashes itself in the head with a hammer, like, repeatedly, like, over and over again. Um, like, do, can you task, like, whoever this new manager is with, like, figuring it out? Like, yeah, sure. Like, I think so. It'll require Jose Abreu to play a lot less often than, like, he usually does. Um, 
I feel like. I think for me, the biggest thing is just not playing Andrew Vaughn in the outfield because it craters all of his value. So if it's something where like they decide that they want, you know, two more years of Jose Abreu, it's not what I would do, but I would highly consider trading Andrew Vaughn for something useful that you could use. Like, and I know like that's not something that you or I either like really want to do right. But I mean, if you can get pitching for him or you could get like a left-handed bat that fits elsewhere, I would honestly consider it if you're going to keep Jose Abreu because I, I just like don't, I just don't think that he doesn't end up in the outfield. Like if they're all on the team, I just think he's going to play the outfield and it's going to drive me insane. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> no, I agree. That's part of it. And you heard how I was trying to explain justifying keeping all three with Olo Jimenez having to play left field. We don't want to see that. I mean, he really had success at designated hitter, but here's how bad Andrew Vaughn is in the outfield. Oloy is better than him. He is. Out there. Gavin Sheets is way so, better than him. Gavin Sheets is probably better than both. Yeah, and, and I don't even think Sheets is that good out there. Like, he's not. Like I, right. But he's better than both of those guys. So, I mean, I and you didn't ask this, but I think, like, part of the problem is, like, in an ideal world, and one of these guys can be Oscar Colas, like, that's fine. Like I would add two left-handed hitting outfielders that are like difference makers, like, you know, fairly good players, right? Like one of them's Colas and one of them's somebody else for the corners. Well, that doesn't leave many spots, right? Then you're picking between a first baseman and a DH and that doesn't even count a Loy. So yeah, these are like some of the questions that this front office is going to have to answer, but like they kind of put themselves in this mess by, you know, having the positional redundancies, you know, kind of like you've talked about. Now, let's talk about the future of this roster then. And, and those, like we were mentioning a little bit earlier, guaranteed to come back. The starting rotation is maintaining Giolito, Lynn, Cease, Kopech. Man, Giolito, tough year. I think he's going to have a better offseason. Uh, w- without the lockout, I can't help but think that the lockout hurt Giolito and also he started the season he was hurt and he was dealing with COVID and then he got sick again when he returned and it's been a very inconsistent year for Giolito we'll call it weird I'll call it weird season for Giolito uh trying to give him the benefit of the doubt here however it is concerning the stuff ticked down right that is is glaring so you have the questions and concerns about Lucas Giolito who's trying to get paid he'll be on his last year next season with the Chicago White Sox and Lance Lynn we, we see him aging and the issues that he dealt with with the knee. Michael Kopech, same deal, who I think overall, all things considered, 120 innings, you'll take that from Michael Kopech. Unfortunate that he wasn't able to finish the season. But in the grand scheme of things, you're looking individually. I think this is a pretty good season for Michael Kopech. And Dylan Cease was a, a Cy Young candidate for most of the year. So just within the rotation, James, I mean, right there, it's enough to compete, but there are so many concerns just underlying. Yeah, and I think going back to Lucas Giolito, like it was a terrible season, and I think he'd be the first one to admit that. You know, I think he had the plan of getting bigger, and like we've talked about, like the added weight, and I really think like not being able to consult with the team kind of hurt in that regard. It completely backfired on him. I actually think Lucas Giolito will figure it out because this is like what this guy does. He's incredibly intelligent, and I think he'll bounce back. Is he an ace? No, but like if he's like a solid number three starter in the rotation, he's going to get paid pretty good money and he'll be super useful. I mean, Cease is, you know, the ace of the staff, obviously. And look, I'm actually like a little bit intrigued still just with what Michael Kopech did. Like, I understand like 
some of the issues and a lot of people think he's like not reliable, but I mean, he got to 120 innings, which means he can probably throw about 160 next year. I would think Michael Kopech really reminded me of like Dylan Cease, Dylan Cease first season when it was so like uneven. Right. But like the good was really good. So I think Michael Kopech will be much better even next year, which theoretically pushes Lynn kind of a little bit further down your rotation. But I mean, you know, if Lynn is like your, your three or your four, like you're in pretty decent shape. So yes, they, they probably need another starter. If not two, I think Davis Martin, like somebody that we've covered is interesting. Like I hope they don't bank on him being in the starting rotation, but I mean, if that's your like sixth or seventh starter, I think you're, you're in a decent spot. I think the biggest thing will be, you know, just how big do they go to fill like the one empty spot that they have, right? It doesn't seem like they're going to be spending a whole ton of money in free agency, but, you know, I think part of the reason why you have Ethan Katz, and I'm assuming Ethan Katz will still be here, is, you know, every year you you try to go find a guy and see who you can improve. So what do you want to see out of the managerial search? I, I know like names are hard to speculate and it, it's, I'm not asking you to, to give me names. I just want to hear what you want to see from the White Sox front office and their approach and their search. Yeah. I mean, so like an actual real search would be nice. Cause it's kind of funny. Like we talked about this even two years ago, they weren't really going to do a search, right? We just, I just liked the outcome. Like I, they were going to hire AJ Hinch. Now I think they were going to interview a bunch of people and then hire AJ Hinch, but they kind of knew, right? So like they could know right now exactly who they're probably going to hire. I just like want it to seem like a real process, if that makes any sense. Um, it, it has to be like a modern day baseball thinker. That's why like I like I really don't have any interest in like Bruce Bochy, Joe Madden, Joe Girardi. I just don't think those managers with that much control is like the way to go about doing this anymore. It's more of a concerted effort with the front office where you listen to your like assembled coaching staff and it's like all hands on deck every night. I would prefer, you know, somebody more analytical, but it's the White Sox. So, you know, it, it won't be totally that way. A Spanish speaker is something that is big for me, right? And then I just want somebody that's not going to allow the nonsense that happened every night that we watched. And it's like, hustle, try. Like, it just like, and like you hired Tony LaRusso and you brought him out of retirement. And I like totally didn't think that that would be an issue, but it was like weekend at Bernie's, man. It was like, just insane. And some of it was beyond his control, I think, with some of the health concerns and, and that. But I just, I finally want like a more fundamentally sound baseball team that tries and hustles. And, you know, yeah, they, they need to hit for more power. That's not really a manager thing. That's an org thing. But I mean, like all of that, like one of, one of these younger, more modern, analytically inclined Spanish speakers would, would be fantastic. And somebody who can play the outfield consistently. All right, we have a lot more to come on this episode. we got to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get your perspective on the Cleveland Guardians and compare it to the way the White Sox run their organization. And then also, Yoan Moncada's future, just to talk about what to expect from him moving forward and address some of the fan questions. I know there's a lot of hate coming towards Rick Hahn's way, but um, totally justifiable. I, I hear you and I feel you. I just, I wonder what it would do if the White Sox fired Rick Hahn. We'll talk about all of it on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Future Sox podcast. 
The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. We're talking about the future of the Chicago White Sox as the organization conducted their final Press conference, oh man, end of the year recap, they said. As Tony LaRusa announced his retirement, Rick Hahn spoke to the assembled media. And we're looking ahead to 2023. New manager upcoming, hopefully a roster that tries hard. And let's start there, James, because boy, when the White Sox competed against you know middle-of-the-road teams in May and June, it seemed like those middle-of-the-road teams were better than the White Sox. And then ultimately we come to find out that, yeah, the White Sox are just below average overall and a team that ran away with the division ultimately was the Cleveland Guardians and they did it with a fun brand of baseball to watch on the field however the Guardians you know going back to the 90s I want to say and I would have to look this up have had more winning seasons and more seasons where they've made the playoffs than they have losing seasons because I know in I know in the mid 90s in the late 90s they were always in the American League Championship Series. They lost in the World Series in 97, and even in the 2000s, they were wreaking havoc. That's an organization that's not necessarily a big market. They don't spend. The The player that they did decide to spend on was Jose Ramirez, and it was a wonderful decision. But other than that, they're trading core pieces for prospects, and those prospects turn out to be core pieces down the line, and the, just the cycle continues as Cleveland continues to be competitive every year, it seems. How is it that they're able to get away with that strategy? And why does it not make sense within the White Sox for them to do what Cleveland does as a philosophy? Yeah, so I've heard a lot about this. And, you know, our buddy Chris Lanuti on the Sox in the Basement podcast, him and his his co-host Ed, like they kind of talked about this, just like being jealous of Cleveland. And like, I understand it. Like, I think Cleveland's front office is awesome. Like, I think if, if I had free reign of the White Sox and I could clean out everything, and like you told me like I could trade front offices, like I would do it in a heartbeat because they're used to like working on restrictions. Right. But it is a little bit easier in Cleveland. Now I'm not going to sit here and say that like a small market team has advantages over a big market team. I think a small market team has advantages over a big market team owned by Jerry Reinsdorf. I think that's totally true, but you know, just like the way Cleveland operates, like you said it, it all comes down to, to player development and scouting they rarely miss, you know, they draft well, they they scout players internationally and sign them and matriculate them to the, to the big leagues. They have a great pitching infrastructure. But the other thing they do, and 
the White Sox would not be able to do this. The Cubs would not be able to do this. The Yankees don't. The Red Sox don't. Like anytime those players get deep into arbitration, like they're not signing cheap deals with Cleveland. Cleveland trades them and they get four or five prospects. Now, the good thing about that is they hit on the majority of those trades, right? So even if you get two or three guys in those trades that turn into cornerstone players for you for a few years before you recycle the process and do it all over again, like it's good. It's a great organization. It really is. Um, and they should be like commended for how they run it. But it's just the way they do it isn't possible in Chicago. Now the drafting development part is, but they get, you know, they get all sorts of extra draft picks that they get to hit on and they get more money to spend internationally. I just, I think it's apples and oranges. Um, but yes, they do, you know, they do a better job of developing players for sure. So if you want to just go there, like I will agree that being jealous of Cleveland's player development is true, but the way they operate and the way they do business it's it's tough to get away with in a major market without getting crucified by by the major market media that's that's currently here. So since 1995, my math may be wrong, but I count 18 season in which Cleveland has gone above 500. So I mean that's pretty damn impressive. And you look at the 90s, six playoff appearances from 95 to 2001, a playoff appearance in 13, 07. 16, 17, 18, and 2020, and 2022. So you talk about the Cleveland Guardians you know, c- consistently churning out competitive seasons. Meanwhile, the White Sox over the last decade, if they finished under 500 this year, have had eight of their last 10 seasons in which they've been below 500. And I know, I understand, like, in 2013, Rick Hahn, like, we can unofficially say that he took over the roster, and then 2016, they fully committed to the rebuild, but... Man, James, the incompetence. I think the thing that we can celebrate as a White Sox fan and us as observers of the Future Sox podcast and futuresox.com and part of SoxMachine.com is that finally we're seeing at least some sort of dedication to developing the minor league system. I mean, over the last six years, they implemented a lot of the analytical tools like Rapsodo, and they hired biomechanical engineers. Like we've mentioned this on previous episodes, and they've also been willing to do things in the draft that we haven't seen them do, and that's you know going high school early, committing overslot dollars to players who they have, they have identified, uh, committing to those types of players, and not being willing to deal them like this year is a prime example of the White Sox sitting on their hands at the deadline because of a multitude of things, mainly because they couldn't compete with other teams in the market due to the talent that was readily available. And I'm talking like triple A depth, but man, James, the incompetence overall that we're seeing from the White Sox as White Sox fans really over 30 years now has been kind of, kind of tough to swallow. At least now though, you separate the bad from the winning from the major league side of things, the lack of winning on the major league side of things to where we stand as observers watching the organization develop the minor league and, and put resources into their own product, I think is encouraging. And hopefully that will lead to change. But also as I continue to ramble, it shows that maybe they're withholding the commitment, uh, the money, the dollars to free agency and they're looking elsewhere like Oscar Colas is going to be a big part of the White Sox in 2023 they went out and got Luis Robert in the international market 
they are signing over slot and committing to top draft picks in recent years. And we're seeing one in Andrew Vaughn come to fruition at the big league level and likely to play a major part in any major league organization for years to come. So that's different. However, the big league side of things continue to show us that they suck. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, obviously. It's just, like, with for me, like, I just, like, always take everything back to ownership because I just kind of feel like, you know, some of the limitations that we've seen from this front office for, like, going on 20 years now. I think we know the type of stuff that they're not very good at which is like signing short-term veteran contracts, right? Like they don't often hit on these. And there are all sorts of quotes out there from Kenny Williams saying that, you know, instead of spending $30 million on one player, he'd spread it across and get four or five players. But the problem with that is like the four or five players that they often sign end up like not being good. And then you have the same roster holes like year after year. This has been a problem, but they also have an owner who, who doesn't like spending in the deep end of the pool, like in free agency. So like you're essentially asking these people that you've kept employed to continue to do things that they're not very good at in the first place. So like, yeah, I just, I, it's, it's tough. Like, I mean, we, we've talked about uh, Yasmani Grandal a lot on this podcast, you know, and I have when I've been on other shows and, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people that think that the four-year, $73 million commitment to Yasmani Grandal was a mistake. And to me, like, I wish the White Sox were spending money like that all the time because I think those deals generally pay off, right? The ones the ones that are bad is, you know, like, and I'm not going to name, like, all these players, but I mean, like, yeah, your, your one-year, six- and seven-million dollar deals for guys that end up being, like, under one war players every year. It's just... They're really bad at that. So they need to do a better job of just like using guys from their system on the margins, right? Like your two extra relievers, your utility guy, like, you know, maybe you fill second base internally somehow. They need to do a better job of that instead of spending, you know, all this money like nefariously on the free agent market, because then maybe you could you know, not sign three guys and you could sign one impact player instead. It's just, it's one part of this rebuild that I haven't really understood. I completely understand, you know, signing the below market extensions to guys who you thought were going to be part of your core. Like they should be commended for that. When you have the owner that you have that isn't going to spend, those deals make all the sense in the world, right? I just, I thought that they were going to add around that core better than they kind of have and it seemed like they were on the right path. And then the last two years kind of happened and it leaves more questions than answers, obviously. James, I think that was really well said. And it's what's plagued the White Sox over the last couple of seasons from getting them over the top in terms of filling the holes that we knew were glaring holes. And they had roster fillers who were just replacement level players filling that spot in significant positions of need. And it's, I understand you're going to commit to the core, and I understand that you have a lot of expectations for guys that you sign like Randall and also Tim Anderson, Aloy Jimenez, and Juan Moncada, who we'll talk about here shortly. But, man, when you're filling right field with Adam Eaton and Cesar Hernandez at second base at the deadline, now I'm going to commend that move too, James. Like you said, it's similar to the Esmany Grandall thing. You go out and spend on a guy like that, it doesn't turn out 
how you exactly wanted it to, but the premise behind it is commendable. And you look at what they did to acquire a piece that they needed at second base and Cesar Hernandez. I understand why they do it. It's just these types of players repeat themselves on this roster in this window. And you're right. I think they missed a large opportunity in that regard. And as we talk about Yohan Moncada, there's been a lot of hate for him specifically this year. We watch him limp around the infield as he as he makes a play to his right in the hole towards you know second base to his left, or if he's in foul territory to his right. He, you know he's always coming back, kind of like shaking something off, or you know there's there's something nagging you on Moncada, and it's him specifically that I think fans tend to notice it more. Well, when it's happening to him, and of course the lack of production at the plate this year has been incredibly disappointing. The guy's an elite third baseman. I I don't see the White Sox doing anything with Yohan Moncada. He's going to be around for at least two more seasons. Is this even a conversation? I don't know that they're going to be able to get rid of the money. I mean, I think it's forty some million over two years. I think it's you know, look, like I I like Yohan Moncada. It was a horrible season. I I think it's something that they would consider. You know, like if somebody else would take the deal, I just, I don't really think it's possible. And I think, I think he's going to be better next year because he honestly, like he has to be right. I mean, he just had probably, I guess, a career worst season and he was still a, a one win player because of defense. You know, I mean, he has 79 WRC plus um, on the season, which was really bad. I mean, I know he hit, he hit 12 homers. It was, you know, they happened kind of late in the year. If he's healthy, I think he bounces back. I think one of the issues was like, you know, a lot of people were underwhelmed by Yoan Moncada's 2021 season, but like, even if he's that guy, I mean, he's a three and a half to four war third baseman um, that plays great defense. And he, you know, hits 14 to 15 homers, gets on base at a 370 clip. Like I will take that guy. You know, the issue is that Yoan Moncada was traded for Chris Sale, you know, and we were expecting an MVP candidate, right? He's not that guy. The 2019 Yuan Moncada is probably not coming back, but yeah, like I think he's a useful player. I think he takes a lot of heat that other guys don't take for lots of different reasons. You know, some of them just because of the way he looks while he's playing. But yeah, I I, I think Yuan Moncada is going to be on the team next year. And honestly, like if he's not on the team, like I don't know how you replace him because you don't have another third baseman in house. And so let's go through the diamond quickly. Moncada Anderson locks on the left side. Romy Gonzalez, potentially James, or a combination of potentially Jose Rodriguez down the road, Gilbert Sanchez, those types? So I think like they needed to kind of decide like who they think their second baseman's going to be, right? Like Sosa was bad in the big leagues, but then he went to Charlotte and he really turned it on. That's a guy we're going to talk about a lot this offseason. Jose Rodriguez, not quite ready, but could be that guy, right? Um, I, I would look at acquiring a left-handed hitting infielder. Like Colton Wong is somebody that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because then... Like you could do that, and then if one of your prospects is awesome, like and takes the job, like I think that's great. Like I think you know something Jim Margulis talks about often is having more bats than spots. I think I think that makes sense. It kind of contradicts what we were talking about earlier with the log jam, but I think like more bats than spots. If guys can play multiple positions, like it makes sense, right? So yeah, I, I wouldn't bank on a guy at second. I would try to put another left-handed bat there and just hope that one of your guys overtakes them because they, they are all righties, all the guys that, that we've kind of talked about that could be in that mix there at second. So we're looking ahead to 2023, the Chicago White Sox. You know, you don't really feel like doing it yet as a White Sox fan, especially considering the White Sox conducted their end of 
season press conference with three games left on the schedule. And I get it. I get it. They were traveling from San Diego and why not just knock it out once they return? It's a typical schedule for Rick Hahn. We talked about it at the beginning of the show. You made it this far into the podcast. We really appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to SoxMachine.com and sign up to join our community. It really helps us grow as a product. And you've seen it over the last year plus. And we have a few things coming out at Future Socks that you can look forward to. Go to futuresocks.com to check out our affiliate reviews. We have each White Sox affiliate recap coming your way on the site. So monitor that. You'll learn about AAA. Our guy Jeff Cohn was outstanding out there again all season, as well as Birmingham, Winston-Salem, Kannapolis, James Hess, the Dominican Summer League, and the, Amer- uh, the Arizona Fall League is already up. The preview there and Instructs coming up. So James... Not only instructs, but uh, some international stuff that you wanted to touch on, too, before we get out of here. Yeah, so the next international period um, starts January 15th again, kind of, you know, the way that it's been going. And, you know, Jesse Sanchez at MLB Pipeline released his top 50 recently. Ben Badler has just brought guys out in, like, fives, it seems like. So he doesn't have, like, his full comprehensive report that he always has. And, you know, we'll try to have Ben on the show, you know, sometime in January to talk about these guys. But, you know, like Juan Uribe Jr. is a guy that we talked about. I I don't really know much about him, but he's he's one of the White Sox signings in this class. There, there's another Cuban um, outfielder that they're signing as well. No surprise there, right? But he's a younger guy and it's like a 300K signing. So the point of that is like the White Sox have – like kind of a lot of money to spend. I mean, they have like almost $6 million to spend internationally and they're really not tied to anybody of great significance at the moment. I mean, the top 50 at MLB pipeline, you know, they're linked to the number 41 overall player. His name is Luis Reyes. He's a 16 year old right-handed pitcher from the Dominican Republic. Now, the thing that's interesting is he's the 41st ranked player. And all these guys that we have on here that talk about the international market always just kind of talk about, how the pitchers are just not that highly ranked, right? So so they're kind of like diamonds in the rough. This guy is actually the highest ranked Dominican pitcher in the class, even though he's like all the way down at 41. And this part's funny, Mike, 5'10", 130 pounds, and he's 16 years old. So, you know, it's just the write-up, it's just a projectable loose arm with a plus fastball and other pitches on the way. Now it says, oh, so I'm wrong. So it says that he's, he's sprouted up to six foot three. So hopefully he weighs, Mm, hopefully he weighs more than 130. But yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, I don't know how much money it's going to be. My guess is it's, you know, around a million dollars, but you know, one of your favorite prospects, you know, Christian Mena was a $250,000 signing in this market. Like they, they've been, they've been doing a pretty, pretty good job here. So, you know, I think it's interesting um, that they're signing as a pitcher. Like I'll have a lot more, on this guy when it comes out. Um, he is kind of, he's based out of Miami, even though he's a, uh, a Dominican prospect. So the Miami miracles, that part's interesting there. There's, so there's another pitcher though. Luis Morales is a 20 year old pitcher out of Cuba. So it was reported that the White Sox offered this guy two and a half million dollars. He's going to the A's instead for well over 3 million. Um, but just, I'm only mentioning this because, because what that tells me is, you know, if the White Sox offered him two and a half million, it means the rest of their money is already committed. So they have signings coming. There are more Cuban players, you know, older Cuban players that are unsigned that aren't linked to anybody. That's likely the route they go because it's likely the route that they go every year. So this money will get spent. It'll just, you know, come to fruition over the next couple of months. What exactly their strategy is. 
Interesting. I was just thinking about, you know, over the last couple of days, I know this isn't necessarily pitching, it's more so hitting, but the tendencies international players have growing up and then the challenges that they face stateside, you know, we're seeing Liddell Chapey dominate on the other side, like in the Dominican Summer League, and he's 20 years old facing younger competition. But also, as hitters coming up, especially Cuban, Dominican types, uh, even, you know, you can send it to Venezuela as well, I think. Very free swinging, and they they feel like they can cover any pitch at that level of competition, and then they get to stateside and start struggling with stuff that's upticked a little bit. So I think it's a fascinating perspective to keep in mind when you're evaluating hitters, international hitters specifically, because they trust their stuff so much. I mean, it shows when they get to the big leagues and how aggressive they are at the plate. It, it just, uh, it's something that I found fascinating in the development of uh, young players, especially hitters coming international side of things. Yeah. And like something we've talked about and the hardest part is like, and Ben Badler's talked about this and we had Maria Torres on. She talked about this a lot, right? I think the toughest part is like when these guys are actually signed or agree to deals, they're so young. I mean, they're even mm-hmm. younger than 16, right? They're like 14. So you're projecting these players, and sometimes you just project wrong and they're kind of bad, right? And it's like, oh, this guy got two and a half million dollars and we never heard from him again because now he's like six, nine or something, you know, like something crazy or like something weird happened, right? And then guys come out of nowhere, like, you know, Akuna. Like he, he wasn't a big mm-hmm. bonus guy. Neither was Wad Soto. Like sometimes it just happens when guys sign this young. So the, the market is, is fascinating. And, you know, the top guys, I will say the very top, top guys usually hit like they, those guys don't usually bust out, but there's a lot of big bonus guys that we just never hear from again. We're looking forward to your coverage, James, in the international market as we do every year at futuresocks.com. I know you have instructs and I'll full, fully transparent here. I am totally out of, out of the loop. So I'd love to get an update on some of the things that you're working on regarding instructs. Yeah. So fall instructs is happening. It's actually a pretty interesting uh, roster. Like it, you know, they sent some guys there that I guess I wasn't totally expecting. Like, you know, like a lot of the recent draft picks, like on the pitching side, we've talked about Schultz being there. But I mean, like Jonathan Cannon's in there pitching, um, which is a little bit interesting. As a college guy, we talked about Tanner McDougal. You know, it's a lot of um, relievers. But Norhe Vera is there as well, which I find interesting. because Do you know how many innings Norhe Vera threw this year? Take a guess. Was it like... 36. Yeah, it's like thir- it's like 35 I think. But yeah, it's like that's like not enough innings, man. So like I don't know what they're going to do for next year. I mean, it's a guy that we're super high on obviously. Um but but he needs to pitch and he's obviously not going to make it all up in instructs, right? But so I thought that was interesting that that he's there and then, you know, just like on the position player side, it's a whole host of guys from from this draft class. You're Jacob Burke and you know, one one of the guys that you've often talked about in Tim Elko, but then like Wes Kath is there. And then, you know, Chapei, like we talked about, Godwin Bennett, Eric Hernandez making his stateside debut. So yeah, there, there's just a whole bunch of guys in White Sox camp that, that play in essentially minor league games on the backfields in Arizona. But it's interesting because with the Arizona Fall League going on, there's all sorts of scouts and prospect people there that wander over to these backfields and they get all this information on instructs um so yeah i can't you know some of that stuff should be coming out baseball america is a great resource to follow in regards to that 
Great stuff, James. And it, you just got me thinking again. I don't want to keep everyone here. This podcast is already you know, moving right along and we're at the end. But man, you talk about those names. They're just names at this point, but loaded with talent. And if you're optimistic, tons of potential. So you talk about the philosophy of a baseball organization. What breeds success? I think it's a commitment to the scouting and development process, relying on core pieces that you developed internally or acquired via savvy trade. It's a, it, identifying players, getting them in your system, and developing them into big leaguers makes you a winner, ultimately. Now, you look at the Dodgers, and the Dodgers are a great comp uh, for any big league team trying to strive to be that because they do it by spending and developing simultaneously. So with the White Sox at this point, you know, I, I, I'm very pleased that they were reluctant to deal who they identified as their best players in the farm system this year. And especially now in hindsight at the deadline, because I didn't want to lose value that they deemed valuable, right. For this team, for this 2022 Chicago White Sox team. If you give them another year, maybe there's a stockpile of talent where you can afford to trade some of these guys. And I know there's a lot of positional players, especially on the infield, that you can likely deal and get value for. But just the idea of stockpiling talent, and if you move talent, there's still more talent in the system. So you're not you're not barren anymore. The White Sox have been barren for years. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not the system that it was obviously, but I, I think it's definitely maybe by mid season, a middle of the pack farm system, right? I mean, we covered the 30th rank system. Now I think people in the preseason are going to have it 24, 25. Like if you get out to fall instructs and Noah Schultz looks like we think he's going to look and Peyton Paulette kind of makes his way back. And, you know, there's a couple other pop-up performances like, yeah, you could be right middle of the pack. I mean, 15 to 20, something in there um, with enough homegrown talent, to help you sustain, right? Because even the last time they did this, it wasn't really homegrown talent. Like they traded for most of that talent, mm-hmm. right? So right. like I would say like your Colson Montgomery's and Oscar Colas and, you know, even like if Brian Ramos makes a top 100 list or one of these pitchers really pops, I mean, that that's, you know, kind of more talent developed than you probably developed on your own last time that you didn't trade for from another organization. So Yep, that's just one of those things. Like, I'm curious to see where they end up because I've liked a lot of the decisions that they've made in scouting recently. Now they just have to develop players more often. Be willing to spend in free agency during your window. And unfortunately, the White Sox just didn't do enough. And they made the wrong decision at manager. Tony La Russa is no longer with the club as he announced his retirement. We wish him healthy. I, I, we want him to to live a long and healthy life. I mean, he's had a successful career in Major League Baseball. He's a Hall of Fame baseball person. We want him to stay on this earth as long as he is able. But it's great to know that he won't be back as just a strictly baseball sense because enough of that whole deal. James, thanks so much for your time and recording this podcast. We got a lot off our chest. Maybe I did. <laughs> Maybe this was more therapeutic for me because, man, this this was a wild 2022. It was. And, you know, something I can't believe I didn't mention sooner. It seems like the White Sox might have like the 15th pick in next year's uh, baseball draft. So oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll spend a, a lot of time talking about that. All right, we're looking forward to that and many other things as the offseason approaches. Unfortunately, the White Sox missing the playoffs. Whatever, it's over.
For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. We went all big league, but that's what we kind of do here at the Future Sox Podcast. We'll, we'll, we cover it all, all encompassing. We go big league, but also take it to organizational philosophy stuff. And, and you know, we have knowledge of the minor league system as well. And we have our guys Josh Nelson and Jim Margulis who are covering the big league club and the minor league club vigorously. They have 365 days out of the year. So it's wonderful to be with them at SoxMachine.com. Thanks so much for hanging with us and being with us throughout the 2022 Chicago White Sox season. Hopefully, better days to come. It's a step in the right direction now that Tony LaRusso is out of the manager's office. We'll have you covered here at Future Sox for everything upcoming in the offseason and ahead of 2023. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening.